Good evening, church family. You can go ahead and keep your Bible open right there to Nehemiah chapter 2. That's exactly where we're going to be tonight. And as we get started, I'd like, if I could, for just a moment to tell you a story, a true story, about a man named Larry Walters, um, also known as Larry Lawn Chair. Growing up, Larry dreamed of flying. After high school, he joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot, but was disqualified because of poor eyesight. He had to settle for watching jets fly over his backyard as he sat in his lawn chair. Until finally, one day, Larry made a decision. It was time to fly. He bought several tanks of helium and 45, 45 weather balloons. And he strapped them to his lawn chair, which of course was safely and securely anchored to the bumper of his Jeep. He filled the balloons with helium. Each one, when fully, when fully filled up, was four feet across. And there's 45 of those, by the way. And then he climbed into the chair to test it while it was still anchored. Satisfied with his preparation, our boy Larry then tied himself into the lawn chair with some sandwiches, some drinks, and a pellet gun, planning to lazily float up to about 30 feet above his, his backyard and the, for a few hours. And when he wanted to come back down, he would whip out the pellet gun, pop a few balloons, and safely float back down. Things did not go as planned. When Larry cut the line that anchored his lawn chair to that Jeep, he streaked into the Los Angeles sky like a bullet from a gun finally leveling off at about 16,000 feet in the air. Using the pellet gun didn't seem like too much of a good idea anymore, potentially throwing the, the, throwing the balance of the chair off and dumping him out, and then he'd really have a problem on his hands. So he just drifted there, cold and frightened for hours. Well, then more trouble came. Larry and his chair slowly began to drift into the primary approach corridor of the Long Beach International Airport. The first person to spot Larry was a United Airlines pilot who immediately notified the tower that he had just passed, quote, a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. <laughs> Cold, terrified, and now dizzy, Larry eventually uh, shot some balloons with his pellet gun to come back down. Somehow he maintained the balance. I don't know how. He tried to land on a large lawn of a local, uh, a local country club, but, of course, he missed and his anchor line got tangled in a set of high-voltage power lines. As he dangled there, the plastic anchor line kept him from getting electrocuted, I'm told, until rescue workers could cut the power and get him safely to the ground again. Larry was later quoted as saying, a guy can't just sit around. Well, in our passage tonight, we are witnessing a big event in the history of Israel. So let's go up then. And let's get a lawn chair's eye view, you might say, of Nehemiah chapter 2 in the context of the Bible's overarching storyline. Like Larry, we're going to get up pretty high. We may even get a little dizzy at times, but I say let's cut the tethers loose. So our outline for tonight, if you're following along, is that we're going to first see a bird's eye view of the Bible. Then we're going to land again safely in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll talk about Nehemiah's prayerful request and the king's kind response. 
that's kind of where we're going for tonight. So first, let's talk about a bird's eye view of the Bible. And I've given you, if you've, if you've grabbed, if, you, if I've given you the, the newer version of the notes, typos, folks, typos, um, then it kind of gives you kind of a handrail for where we're going. Uh, I want to use a, a, an outline that, that TLI, one of our missions partners, actually uses in training pastors. And, uh, and so that's going to kind of be our, our, uh, our guide as we go throughout this what we call a bird's eye view of the Bible. And let's, let's uh, ask ourselves as we do this, how does this moment fit into the greater story of God's kingdom? All right, and so again, we're gonna use this acrostic, this acrostic of kingdom. So each stage is gonna be uh, a different letter in that acrostic. So stage one, kickoff and rebellion. Kickoff and rebellion. Uh, this covers Genesis chapter one, through uh, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 9. God created everything from nothing and commissioned Adam and Eve to steward it under his rule. He had a unique relationship with them in this garden paradise called Eden. But Adam and Eve gave in to the serpent's temptation and they sinned against God. And God, uh, and, uh, and God justly judged against their sin, yet at the same time filled us with hope at this promise of redemption in Genesis chapter 3.15, that this promised seed, this promised one would come and crush the, heel, or crush the head of the serpent. Our, 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 our salvation, our redemption was guaranteed from the moment that sin began in this world. Isn't that good? After Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, two family lines emerged. Cain's line, whose line walked the way of the serpent. Not literally on the ground, but in rebellion against God. Just thought I'd say that there. Um, and Seth, whose line called upon the name of the Lord. Man's wickedness, and grew evil, uh, man's wickedness and evil grew to such an extent that God judged the earth with a flood. Uh, though in his grace, he saved a man named Noah and his family from destruction in an ark, a boat. But mankind's inherent wickedness continued and people gathered to build a tower so they might make a name for themselves and not be scattered. God confused their languages, causing them to scatter. And today, we, this is all we know about them. I thought that was funny. Isn't that interesting? That they, let's build this tower so that we can make a name for ourselves. God scatters them and the only thing we know about them is that God scattered them for building this tower. Interesting. So that's the end of stage one. Stage two instrument of blessing that's the patriarchs this is the I in the kingdom of acrostic here this is genesis 11 verse 10 through genesis chapter 50 god chose a man from seth's line named abram later called abraham he leads him into a land called canaan and promises him that a future kingdom will be there and that will be his as a people as the people of the land they are people in this land god's promises will ultimately be realized to a promised offspring through a singular offspring, it says. One male leader. Abraham trusted God's promises and God credited that trust to him as righteousness. God graciously provides for Abraham's descendants, finally bringing them to Egypt to escape a great famine in the land of Canaan. That's the end of stage two. Stage three, nation redeemed and commissioned. This covers uh, the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. God gave an initial fulfillment of his promises by making Abraham's family into a mighty nation called Israel. God delivered Israel from Egypt, established a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, which included a means of atonement for sin through a sacrificial system, all this pointing toward this one that would come later. 
God also established Israel's uh, come and see mission to the nations, emphasizing their evangelistic role in maintaining faithfulness to the covenant. By maintaining faithfulness to the covenant, they were showing God's ways for all the, the world to see. When God led them back to the land that he had promised Abraham, the first generation failed to trust God's promises, saying that it was better to go back to Egypt uh, than it was to trust God's promises and go into this land, land that they knew was good, a land flowing with milk and, with milk and honey. And then God condemned that entire first generation to death in the wilderness in a long 40-year death march and prepared the second generation, the ones that the first generation were concerned about. They, they're not going to survive in this land, you know, hiding behind their own children. And God says, you know what? That generation that you, you are so worried about, I will take them into the land. I am more than capable of doing it. Man, praise God. And so God prepared the second generation to enter in under Joshua, the son of Nun. Uh, now, stage four, G, government in the promised land. This stage covers Joshua uh, through uh, Joshua through Second Chronicles, as well as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea. Um, Israel experienced the initial fulfillment of God's promises for a homeland under this one called Joshua, um, this, uh, which interestingly means the Lord saves. Kind of file that away for later. Uh, but they struggled with com- with complete obedience, putting them in this continual cycle, this continual cycle of rebellion hardship, brokenness, and deliverance. And again, over and over and over again during the days of the judges. Eventually, Israel selected a man named Saul as their king. God rejected him for his rebellion and chose David, a man after his own heart. He united the kingdom, subdued his enemies, and received the promise that God from God that his lineage would, would rule forever. Just when David started looking like this promised one, this promised deliverer that we've been waiting for, he commits adultery with his best friend's wife and has the best friend murdered. After David's death, his son Solomon became king. He started out well and built a temple for the Lord, just as the Lord had promised, but fell into sin as well, proving that he's not the promised one either. As punishment, God splits the kingdom in half after, after Solomon's death. Um, the kings that follow Solomon in both, in both nations, uh, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, where Jerusalem is, where the capital is, the kings that follow Solomon all spiral into sin, except for two from the southern kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah and Josiah. But overall, Israel and Judah journey deeper and deeper into idolatry and sin, things that God warned them that he would, he would judge them for. Stage five, D, dispersion and return. Dispersion and return. This stage covers Second Kings, Second Chronicles, the major and minor prophets, Ezra, <coughs> Nehemiah, <coughs> pop quiz later, and Esther. God sent graciously, uh, or God graciously sent prophets to warn Israel and Judah to turn and repent. Um, but they largely re- refused. So God, fulfilling his promise from Deuteronomy, judged them for their sin by exiling them from the promised land, Israel. Israel by Assyria, and then later Judah by Babylon. After 70 years of exile, God delivered a remnant of Judah back to the promised land. God's people returned and set about the task of rebuilding the kingdom with high hopes, but only, uh, but only experienced God's promises in part due to their sin. Because of their continued disobedience, God finally stopped speaking to them for a period of 400 years. Um, 
though he did though he stopped speaking he was continuously working behind the scenes preparing Israel and the world around them for the coming of this promised one the Old Testament closes with Israel waiting in the silence for this promised one to come step six stage six the overlap of the ages oh overlap of the ages this stage covers really most of the old test or most of the new testament israel now under the rule of rome finally received the promised one god's own son the god man jesus whose name like joshua means the lord saves jesus the christ he is the fulfillment of all god's promises going all the way back to the the first promise in Genesis 3.15. He never broke God's commands. He bore God's wrath against our sin through his sacrificial death on the cross. And in there in him, the sacrificial system was completed and fulfilled and no longer needed. Then um, he showed God's power over death in his resurrection from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven from where he will soon return when he comes, uh, when the time comes. Until then, his kingdom is now here on earth. Jesus himself, the king, inaugurated his kingdom and it will expand as his spirit empowers his people to proclaim the gospel of repentance and faith, uh, repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth until the end of time. This is our time where the ages seem to overlap in one sense because God's promises are already fulfilled in Jesus, yet they also stand in some ways unfulfilled yet to be fulfilled when he returns. The latter days have already broken in upon the present, but the old age is still here as well. And then finally, stage seven, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And this comes from Revelation as well as a few additional passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Bible says that the day will surely come when Jesus will return and set all things right. Praise God. Jesus will complete his kingdom. He will consummate his kingdom, perfect his people in himself, and will welcome them into his presence where they will live in his presence and enjoy him forever. Those who have not trusted in him, those who have not uh, trusted in Jesus Christ are swept away into everlasting torment under God's wrath, which they justly deserve for their sin. God has given these things to us, the church, so that even in the face of trials and sorrow that we would remain hopeful in God's promises, and persevere to the end. So that's the whole Bible. All right. Now, pop quiz. In our our passage tonight, in Nehemiah chapter 2, what stage does it fall under? Yeah, stage 5. That's right. We're in stage 5, dispersion and return. Nehemiah's story begins as God's people have been in exile for around 70 years. And by the decree of another king, a previous king named Cyrus, uh, the people have already begun to make their way back to Jerusalem. The temple has already been uh, under construction, but it's, it's not protected. The walls, they're, they're still broken down. They're, the gates are still burned with fire. And this is the message that Nehemiah has heard, and it weighs on him tremendously for about a period of four months. So much so that it provokes a conversation with his boss, with the king. So as we descend now from this bird's eye view of the Bible and land back safely without power lines being involved, by the way, uh, let's look now in Nehemiah chapter two. And I want us to see, first of all, Nehemiah's prayerful request. Nehemiah's 
prayerful request. Verse 1 says, And it came about in the month Nisan, in the, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please you, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah had, had never been sad before in the king's presence. And you, you may wonder why. Well, again, what was Nehemiah's job? He was a cupbearer. He was bringing the cup. He was bringing the wine before the king. So it sounds like in, in, as the king kind of steps in, hey, buddy, are you okay? That kind of thing. He, you notice that his, he checks and he's making sure, first of all, that he's not sick. The king has a very valid interest in whether or not Nehemiah is sick, right? All right? Because if, if Nehemiah is sick, there's a chance that this wine is poisoned, right? So the king wants to know, if you're not sick, then what's going on? And to be a cupbearer, you're also very close to the king. This was a very esteemed position. In some cases, in some, uh, in some eras of, of Medo-Persian history, the cupbearer was really seen as second to the king. So this was, this was he had a very valid, a very uh, intent interest in this man. And at this point, Nehemiah is terrified. Being sad at the king's feast would likely anger the king. Um, as this would have likely been a feast kind of situation. But he's been mourning over this for four months. He's been praying and fasting. And he knows this king that he serves, this king that he is now so close to, that, that he was, that this role, this, the king was against the building of Jerusalem before. I look at, at actually at Ezra chapter 4, verses 23 through 24. It says, kind of leading up to this, that, uh, that the king had sent letters to the, the area governors and basically said, you need to stop all the construction right now. Do it by force if necessary. Don't delay in doing this. And so here's what uh, it says in, in verse 23. Then as soon as the copy of the king Artaxerxes document was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and the other colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Then work of the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this was a serious situation. He, and, and, in the, and in the midst of this terror, him being terrified, he explains Judah's condition. And the king allows him to make a request. Clearly a door has been opened here. Otherwise the king wouldn't even be interested. Otherwise the king wouldn't ask for more. He wouldn't ask for a request. And at the same time, wouldn't you still be kind of, kind of frightened? I know I would. Because if I don't ask this right, if I don't have the right words, if I don't, if I don't do this well, then not only could this opportunity potentially to go back and to, to rebuild the city could be squandered, but your life could be at stake, right? And so what did Nehemiah do? He prayed to the Lord of heaven. Please hear me. The point of this sermon and this series is not that you would be more like Nehemiah. 
We're not going to try to list out his character traits and try to copy him. Instead, my, my, my plea to you is that you would see the glory of God as Nehemiah saw it. See the majestic sovereignty of God that Nehemiah saw. Think about it. This news had invaded his life because it was God's sovereign will. And the Lord had placed him close to the king for such a time as this, just like Esther. Doesn't it follow then that the Lord will direct his steps now as he enters through this door? And the question is for us, when we are put on the spot, what is our first response? Do we, do we try to throw something together? Do we, do we think about, well, I, I got to stay away from this, this phrase here and do that here and that here? Or do we pray? And I would submit to you that praying is always the first, the, always the first answer, always the best answer. And the, the beauty of it here is that it, he's being put on the spot. It, so we know that it, it was not something lengthy. It may have been something to the degree of, Lord, help, right? But doesn't the Lord hear that? Haven't we already seen today from his word that the Lord hears and he's able to discern what, our, what, we're, what we're saying, what we're, what we're wanting to say, that, he, that his Holy Spirit is interceding for us with, with groans that are too deep for words. Friends, look up to the Lord. He's the God of heaven who upholds the universe by the word of his power, who bore his own infinite wrath against your sin and my sin on the cross, who has given you his spirit to dwell in you, promising that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you. Don't you think you could go to him in prayer anytime, under any circumstances? So Nehemiah makes his request, and then um, he makes this request that he be able to go back to Judah and rebuild Jerusalem. Um, it's a bold move. Um, it's interesting that he doesn't mention Jerusalem by name, but he mentions the territory of Judah. Uh, surely Artaxerxes knows what Jerusalem is, knows what Judah is. He's the one that decreed this order in the first place before. And so he is stepping lightly, uh, yet he is doing so trusting that no matter uh, no, how high an argument that he can make, if the Lord doesn't do this, then it's not going to happen. So now, uh, as we've looked, we look then at um, this bird's eye view of the Bible. We've looked at Nehemiah's prayerful request. And now, uh, let's look at the king's kind response. The king's kind response. Verse 6 says, Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given to me for the, for the governors of the provinces beyond the river so that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. Basically, the house he's going to stay at. Um, and the king granted them to me because... The good hand of my God was on me. 
Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. And when when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, they were very displeased. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. The king was pleased to send him. This is the king who had ordered the, the stopping by force of the construction of the temple and things like this in Jerusalem before. And yet he is now pleased to send him. And notice, it's not like, I'm pleased to send you, get out of here. Let me get rid of you. He says, when will you return? I want you to come back. This is, he is, he is investing here. He knows that. This is a temporary loss for him. It's not something he came to, oh, sure, yeah, go ahead. So, he is pleased to send him. Then even after Nehemiah made additional requests in verses seven and eight for letters of passage and essentially a shopping spree at the local Home Depot for building supplies, right? The king readily grants it. He even throws in a military escort for him. Did you see that? Officer of the army and, and horsemen as well. And in all of this, who does Nehemiah attribute it to? Why does Nehemiah... What does Nehemiah attribute this amazing kindness to? Man, I really put together a great argument here. Man, the king, he and I are buddies. That guy, he's great. I'm going to make a statue for him somewhere. No. What does he say? Because the good hand of the Lord was on me. And so in this, we're not saying that Nehemiah is great. Instead, Nehemiah realized the greatness of our God. Uh, A man by the name of F. Charles Fincham, uh, say that five times fast, he he wrote a commentary on the book of Nehemiah and Ezra together, and he said this. Maybe we can put that up on the screen. I love this quote. It says, Everything that happened in the past to Israel is interpreted as the will of God. Their moments of decline and their moments of success are ascribed to his will. Likewise, even the events in the, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah are also ascribed to him. And he gives some places where. Um, I'm sorry, the, the favorable disposition of Cyrus, the previous king, and the friendly attitude of Artaxerxes are worked by the Lord. Hence, The Lord not only determines the history of his own people, but also fulfills his will through the mighty kings of foreign nations. He's got the whole world in his hands. He does, doesn't he? It's all his. Truly, friends, even the king's heart is like channels of water in the the Lord's hand, and he turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21.1, God's will most definitely will be accomplished. What a reminder to you and me. When things go well, how quick are we to give the Lord credit for them? When things don't go well, how quick are we to remind ourselves that his will is always done and that in Christ it's ultimately for our good? It may not immediately turn your sorrow into joy. We can't just pick up our, our joy Selves by our, by our bootstraps. We can't just make ourselves be happy instantly. But at the same time, it can fill your sorrow with hope. We can grieve with hope. 
We can long for a change with hope. Friend, lay your yesterdays to rest at Jesus' feet and trust your present and future to his sovereign, mighty, and loving hands. You're not meant to carry that weight, neither am I. And if you're trying, it's likely crushing you. Trust the God that Nehemiah trusted in and rest. It doesn't mean you won't still have work to do. It doesn't mean you won't have trouble still to face. And as we see, even here at the end of this passage with Tobiah and Sanballat, there's still a lot of things that have to unfold. And there's a lot of adversity that has to be uh, passed through in Nehemiah's journey. But what Jesus promises for you and for me is that he will be the one that does the heavy lifting. Like Jesus himself said in our memory verse for this month, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Church family, we've seen tonight how Nehemiah found himself having an audience with the ruler of the, one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. Yet we also discovered that he himself, the emperor, the king, Artaxerxes, was in the, was in the service of someone even greater. Someone who we see working throughout the entire grand narrative of the, of the Bible for his glory to be revealed to the ends of the earth. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will complete what he started. Don't rest your hope on anything but the kindness of the king. Let's pray together. Lord of heaven, thank you for this reminder of your great authority and our great need. Would you cause your word to sink down deep in our hearts like a medicine that makes us well? Please deliver us from our dependence upon people and positions and possessions. And would you provide us with every open door, every provision, every power and desire needed to do the things that you've commanded us to do. Oh Lord, that you would continue to build your church in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.